beloved in the Lord. While laying out the laws of God in Deuteronomy, Moses is always drawing our minds back to God's gracious work in redeeming Israel. Many of the laws themselves, and and especially what we call the ceremonial laws, are memorials, memorials to what God has done. The teaching is clear, just as it is for Christians today. Obedience to this law should spring out of thankfulness for what God has done for Israel. And that thankfulness comes from remembering, remembering who God is and what He did for His people. And in nothing is this more prevalent than the laws that relate to God's teaching on the fourth commandment. Israel's Sabbath, her rest, her high feasts, her ties all flow from the redemption of God. I have given you freedom, says God, and this is my law of freedom. Our passage today is no exception. Even though we might not right away see the connection between the command to sacrifice the firstborn and God's teaching that goes before about the the freedom that comes with the year of release, the freedom that belongs to Israelite slaves on the seventh year of their slavery. Even though we might not right away see the connection, when we connect it to the history of Israel, We remember what God did in Egypt. We remember how God condemned all the firstborn of Egypt to death, yet spared the firstborn of his people through the Passover lamb. I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, God redeems us through the death of the firstborn. First, we're going to see the death of the firstborn, especially the death of the firstborn animals. The bread of affliction is our second point. And finally, the freedom of the believer. So, those first four verses we read, 19 to 23 of Deuteronomy 15, they act as a transitional passage, moving from teaching about the year of release and the matter of Israelite slaves to teaching about the festivals of Israel. We have here a a reminder of the freedom that Israel received and a connection to the foundational work of God, that foundational work of rescuing Israel from Egypt. These are the things that Israel is called to celebrate in her feasts. God tells Israel, All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock you shall dedicate, dedicate to the Lord your God. This may in part be a call to set aside the first of one's produce for the Lord. That's undoubtedly true, but there's more going on here. We find this commandment's foundation in the original Passover. Pharaoh has hardened his heart to the degree that God will heighten the severity of the plagues that he brings upon Egypt. He will destroy every firstborn male, man and beast in the nation of Egypt. 
but He provides a way out for the Israelite. They may take a lamb and sacrifice it, putting its blood upon their doorposts so that the angel of the Lord would pass over their houses in His judgment upon Egypt. It's interesting to note the differences between the last plagues and the other plagues that God sends upon Egypt. Some plagues affect everybody in Egypt, including the Israelites. As time goes on, the Israelites are distinguished from the rest of Egypt through God's decision to spare Goshen from the plagues that He sends out. And in the final plague, God separates Israel, like He has before, But if you go on to read chapter 12, we read chapter 11, if you go on to read chapter 12, he will separate her through sacrifice. Israel must redeem her firstborn males through the act of sacrificing a lamb. Why did the firstborn have to die? The necessity of redeeming the firstborn goes back to Adam. Adam is, in a sense, the firstborn, the first man that walks upon the face of the earth. We read about that in Romans 5. He is the firstborn, the man who brought the whole world into sin. The punishment for sin is death. And there's a hope. Maybe another firstborn will come and redeem the first firstborn. Genesis is a record of the failures of the firstborn. They do not and cannot show the way back to communion with God. They cannot answer the sin of Adam. Ishmael, Abraham's first son, is passed by in favor of Isaac, the son of the promise. God hates Esau but loves Jacob. Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, defiles his father's bed and becomes one of the least of the tribes of Israel. The firstborn is a failure. The firstborn must be redeemed. And Israel remembers that by the sacrifice of the firstborn of her animals. Her sons have been redeemed through the Levites. God has chosen the tribe of Levi as an acceptable replacement for the firstborn sons of Israel. Yet he calls Israel to continue to bring a sacrifice, the firstborn of their flock, in order to demonstrate their need for redemption. These firstborn animals are dedicated to the Lord from their birth. Therefore, the Israelites are not to make any money off of these animals. God says, you shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. The animals and anything that comes from them are separated for the Lord's worship alone. They are consecrated to the Lord. What are they they to do with the animal? You shall eat it, you and your household, before the Lord your God, year by year, at the place the Lord will choose. The animal is to become a peace offering. When we think of sacrifices, we tend to think of those sacrifices where fire consumes the whole animal. But many sacrifices were peace offerings. 
The Jew was just as likely to associate a meal with, with sacrifice as consuming fire with sacrifice. The firstborn animal died so that the household could have communion with God. And the eating of that animal will be an act of worship before the Lord. That's why it's crucial that they bring the animal down to the temple. God wants his people to use the animal in order to worship him, in order to eat with him. In the same way we eat before God. Yet, unlike the Israelites, we must remember that in our eating we are brought even closer to God. We eat with God when we have the Lord's Supper God is accessible in a new way through Christ and the Spirit. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to eat before God. Even when Israel went to Jerusalem, even when she went there, she was still barred from the fullness of God's presence because of the curtain that divided her from the fullness of God's presence. Think about that. You don't see a curtain here. We don't have a curtain in front of the Lord's Supper The establishment of the Lord's Supper is evidence that God wants us to continue to eat before him and even with him. But the animal may be blemished and not appropriate for the worship of God. But if it has any blemish or if it is lame or blind or any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You shall eat it within your towns. The unclean and the clean alike may eat it. Of course, only clean, only if you were clean could you come and join the feasts of God. So the unclean and the clean alike may eat it as though it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood, you shall pour it out on the ground like water. God wants the animal sacrificed him to represent the cleanness and righteousness that he intended man to have. Yet Israel is still to eat it. The lesson is, the firstborn must die. Passover has the same lesson. Immediately after teaching about the sacrifice of the firstborn, God brings up the importance of observing the Passover. Chapter 16, verse 1. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd in the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. This is the commemoration of the redemption of Israel from Egypt. Israel, and what is Israel sometimes known as in the Bible? The firstborn. From Exodus 4 verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And so this remembers, God has redeemed his firstborn son. The emphasis in Deuteronomy 15 is the the gratitude of Israel in remembering what God has done. She is to continue to bring the firstborn of her animals before God so that she may remember her redemption from the land of Egypt. She has been redeemed, and in response, she continues to lift up sacrifices and offerings to the Lord. In the same way, we New Testament Christians 
are to continually offer before the Lord our living sacrifices in our worship and in our good deeds, and this too becomes bread for those around us. In Christ, we can be confident that we are free from the blemish of sin so that we do offer up acceptable sacrifices. But going back to Deuteronomy, the fact that they must continue to shed blood, that the firstborn males of their animals must die, it demonstrates that there's still a problem. They can't eat the blood of those animals. That means they cannot receive new life from those animals. Yes, they are redeemed from physical slavery, but there's a problem at the heart of their misery that hasn't been dealt with yet. Sin. The death of the animal allows them to have communion with God, but it cannot truly cover sin. That's why they can't go beyond that temple veil. In a way, Israel is set up for failure. Just as the firstborn throughout Genesis fails, so Israel, God's firstborn son, will fail, and a new son must come and take her place. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the true Israel, the new Adam, who dies for the sake of the sins of the world. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, so that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. God offers up his Son as a replacement for any son who willingly believes in God. Christ is our redemption. This redemption is not only offered to Israel. The redemption from Egypt was specifically for, for Israel. We might imagine that some Egyptians hearing about Moses' call to, to sacrifice a lamb might have followed suit because they feared God. But ultimately, it was meant for Israel. The redemption of Christ is offered to the world from Acts 17. These times of ignorance God overlooked, but he now calls all men everywhere to repent. In Adam, all of us are in sin and misery, and we need Jesus, the firstborn of creation, to free us from that sin and misery. That brings us to our second point, the bread of affliction. We go to those last two verses in chapter 16 now. So on the festival of the Passover, the people of Israel are to observe another practice. Beginning on the day that they eat the Passover lamb, they are to remove all leaven from their households. And they are only to eat unleavened bread. Leaven is a yeast mixture, literally a sourdough, and you would break a piece off of it and add it to your flour, and that, that yeast that's in the sourdough would get into the rest of your flour. 
God wanted that removed from the household of, of the Israelites while they celebrated the feast of the Passover. For the most part in Scripture, leaven is a picture of something bad. It's a picture of lies and false doctrine that continue to influence the believer. Here in Deuteronomy, it pictures the practices of Egypt that would have had an effect on Israelite practice. God wants Israel to be cleansed from the old leaven. God wants Israel to think of leaven as fleshly attitudes about salvation. Verse 3, you shall eat no unleavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. When Israel left Egypt, they had to run. Pharaoh was ready to chase them out. Besides, if you read the story of Israel's exodus, you would realize if they, if they hadn't taken that opportunity, Pharaoh may well have changed his mind again. And when you're in a hurry, you don't have time to let the leaven, the sourdough, leaven the rest of your dough. You bake your bread without yeast. It's because of the haste that Moses calls it the bread of affliction. And it's this phrase, the bread of affliction, that Paul is likely picking up on in 1 Corinthians 5. There he warns the people of God about sin as a type of leaven that will grow, that will get inside and take over the church. He encourages to the people to remove leaven from their midst and eat the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The affliction is, is there for the good of a person so that he or she will remove the unwelcome presence of lies and worldly philosophies. Personally, it's a picture of, of the removal of sin, both in your beliefs and in your practice. Corporately, it's a picture of the removal of hardened, hardened sinners from the church of God. Sinners who are seeking to destroy the church of God. God intends this to be a strong picture of the removal of sin. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days. Completely getting rid of it. God desires complete, a complete renovation in our lives. As much as we recognize a belief in the lies of this world, we must remove it. In turn, Israel ought to fully partake of the sacrifice that she has offered in the Lamb. Nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. Leaven is removed for seven days. You begin that period consuming every part of the slain lamb. Every part of the lamb is incorporated into the bodies of your household. Your household is filled with the lamb so that she may have the strength to remove the leaven. So yes, in general, leaven is a picture of bad doctrine, lies, and more generally, sin. There is one exception to this rule. On the Feast of Pentecost, Israel is explicitly told to wave leavened bread before the Lord. 
since everything that is brought into the temple is supposed to be unblemished, that is, the Lord finds no fault with the thing offered, we can imagine that here, leaven is something good, something to be desired. The Spirit comes to the church on Pentecost, the day when leavened bread is offered before the Lord. He enters the hearts of believers and prepares a leavened people to come before the Lord. The old leaven is removed on the cross of Christ. The new and the true leaven, the Spirit's work of sanctification, works in us so that we may be offered before the Lord. The Spirit becomes the source of all good teaching. And this is actually why we don't follow the Roman Catholic practice of eating unleavened bread at the Lord's Supper. Rather, we eat a Pentecostal loaf. And that brings us to our third point, the freedom of the Christian. We need to remind it here again, even as we look at all these laws, the thing behind it is the freedom that Israel has received in God's redemption. The sacrifice of the firstborn animals commemorates Israel's freedom. The Passover points back to the foundational event which gave Israel freedom. The goal is the festival and communion with God. The goal is to remember what God has done. Israel is to observe the Sabbath as a commemoration of her freedom. Festivals like Passover are what we might call high Sabbaths. These are special moments, again, to celebrate her freedom. How does this all apply to the freedom of the Christian? No longer under the law, but under the law of Christ, the law of the Spirit. We too have been redeemed. A greater redemption, one greater than Moses, is here. We too have been brought into a new era of freedom. We commemorate that not through animal sacrifice, but through wholly giving ourselves to God as living sacrifices. The firstborn was dedicated to God. We share in the righteousness of the firstborn of creation, Jesus Christ. And so in him, we too are fully dedicated to God. Now, it's not that Israel was not dedicated to God. She was, after all, a priestly nation set apart to serve the Lord. But in Jesus Christ, that dedication is elevated. We are equally elevated to priestly action before God. That dedication is greater. We should not have less fear of God now that we are in Christ, but rather, again, an elevated fear. Because we know so much more about him. We have seen his glory. Therefore, we seek through Christ to remove the blemishes of sin that remain so that we may grow in giving ourselves to him. And we have the promise that we are able to do so. For in justifying us in his resurrection, Christ has also given us the Holy Spirit 
who kindles in us the fire we need to give our reasonable service to God. What about the leavened bread? What does that have to do with freedom? It at least has something to do with Paul's warning in Galatians about returning to the fleshly lusts, to fleshly efforts after receiving the grace of God. Fleshly efforts come from allowing sin, pride, envy, greed, lust to have some rule in our life. We are called instead to eat the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That means we want to speak the truth according to the truth, capital T truth, Jesus Christ. And that means we oppose the lies of this world. Adam's grandfather was a monkey. Fornication is fun. Stealing from Walmart doesn't hurt anyone. Abortion is kindness. Homosexual love is just like the love between a man and a woman. Men and women are interchangeable. We seek to remove these false philosophies from our lives. We seek to remove their influence. We crucify our sin on the cross of Christ. Christ redeems us so that we may remove the leaven of this world, the leaven of the works of the flesh. And the leaven of those things, is it's not simply denying those statements, but that we're careful to remove their working out as well. Christ is our Passover feast, and if we participate in Him, we will not participate in the works of this world, in the leaven of this world. At the same time, we receive the Spirit who is leavening the kingdom with the leaven of God, the good works of God. By the power of the Spirit, we separate ourselves from our sins and receive life. We are given freedom, not to sin that grace, to ab- that grace may abound, but we are freed to put away that sin, to crucify our sins on the cross of Christ and find their life in Jesus. Of course, then, the freedom of Jesus does not make everything permissible. Instead, it is a freedom from something. It is freedom from the rule of Satan. And that means we will want to remove spiritual leaven from our houses. We will want to remove the leaven of the world from our lives. And the picture of leaven particularly brings to mind influences. Leaven influences the rest of the bread. The the yeast gets into the rest of the bread. We have to be on guard against what we bring into our houses through friends, through the TV, through the internet. Are you watching and guarding against the leaven of this world in your life? Do you know what that professor, author, or musician, or director is trying to teach you? Are you committing your whole self to the service of God? Thanks be to God that we have more than just this law that is found in Deuteronomy. God has fulfilled that law in Jesus Christ. And Christ shares his life with us so that we may eat unleavened bread in him. 
that we may afflict ourselves, removing ungodly influences from our life. And he offers a different leaven, the leavening and lively Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we preach again of our freedom. That's the underlying reality of the freedom to worship God and have communion with Him. Freedom from sin. Let's not take that lightly. We have such a gift in Christ. Instead, let us seek with all our power that Holy Spirit to work in us so that we may continually crush sin and find life. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.